You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for September 2008. Today's episode is titled, How to Build an Organization. To be effective, every organization must discern its mission. The mission of an organization is an expression of its purpose. Walmart's mission is to provide value to its customers. Disney's mission is to make people happy. And Merck's mission is to address unmet medical needs. Obedience is about discerning and doing the will of God. This should be the focus of every organization. And every organization should build disciples who are personally discerning and doing the will of God in their individual lives. These disciples will then enable the organization to fulfill its mission. Well, I'm delighted to be with you. This is a delightful place. We've enjoyed the week. The weather's been marvelous. We asked the Lord if the the temperature not get above 20. He kind of partially responded to that prayer. But I assure you, it's a lot cooler here than back home. So we're delighted to be here with you. And you may have noticed the quote that was up there, you know, build sons, not monuments for yourself, uh, at the beginning of the service. Let me just explain that. Uh, Sons in the scripture does not refer to male or female. Sons refers to people that you are reproducing yourself in, whether they be male or female. And the reason I put that up there is because that's really the game that we're all in, is to reproduce ourselves. If we don't reproduce ourselves, and whatever God's put into us is not put into somebody else, when we die, what happens to what was put into us? Do you believe that God may put a deposit in you? I know that's, that's probably hard for some of us to believe, but God's in the business of making deposits. He deposits revelation in people, so he's going to put deposits in you, and if we're wise stewards, we're going to steward that deposit well, we're going to build on it, and we're going to pass it on. So that's what building sons is all about. And I was so blessed to watch the fathers praying over the sons here. What a great picture of blessing your sons, imparting to your sons, speaking the will of God over your sons, and that's what we as fathers should be doing. And by the way, you understand that there are spiritual fathers as well as natural fathers? You know, Paul had numerous spiritual sons, Timothy, Titus, Epaphras, various ones. And they, they were used by God to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason they were used is because Paul deposited in them what was in him. So as we begin to make sons, then what we do is we begin to impact our culture. Well, today I want to talk to you about mission, monuments, and missing the mark. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And we're going to just uh, read this text together. That's going to be the essence of our message, is just what's in this text. Now, I assume all of you have some knowledge of the Bible, and you know that it's got basically the Bible has two parts. There is an Old Covenant and a New Covenant. Everybody know that? Okay. Now... Does anybody know why there is an old covenant? Anybody? I think there is this inherent in all of us a desire or a a response to God that says, God, if you'll just tell me what to do, I'll do it. How many of you have said that? Well, I did that when I first was saved as a young boy. God, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Now, what was wrong with that statement? You can't because this flesh here that we're in can't do it. So what the Old Testament is largely about, there are many lessons there, but there is a huge lesson, and that is the lesson that says you cannot do anything to make yourself acceptable with God. That's what the Old Testament is largely saying. And it's pointing to Christ. Christ is the solution to our problem. Accepting Jesus Christ, now we've accepted a... A a way to now be reconciled to God, to be forgiven, to be justified, to now be in right relationship with God, which is the way God intended man to be. So that's really the Old Testament and the New Testament. So here we are in 1 Samuel 15. We are in the what? Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And Saul is king of Israel. Israel is God's chosen people. Israel is his people through which Jesus Christ would come. And he gave Abraham a promise that all the world would be blessed. And Paul gave us an interpretation of that promise in Galatians 3. 
Who remembers the interpretation of that promise? A justification would come through Jesus Christ. You know, the, you know the Bible interprets itself? If you just read it and look at it, Galatians 3 interprets Genesis 12 and tells us that Jesus Christ would bring the justification of God to us. And that's the blessing for the whole world. So as we're walking through the Old Testament, God's teaching us many lessons. And uh, there was a period of time after the, the Israelites went into the promised land where they were ruled by judges. And then they decided they wanted a king. Do you remember the circumstances there? Samuel was the prophet. Samuel had sons. But when Samuel's sons grew up and began to be apprenticed under Samuel, what happened? Samuel's sons did not have the heart of Samuel. And so they became corrupt. And they accepted bribes and they twisted justice. And the the people of Israel responded to that that misuse there. And what they said was, give us a king. Because all the other nations have a king, we want a king. And so Samuel reacted to that very negatively, because he knew that request was a rejection of God. And God said, that's okay, they are rejecting me, but I'll go ahead and let them have a king. You know, God a lot of times will give us things that we want, even though it's not necessarily good for us. Okay? Because in the end, he's going to teach us something. You know, God's into always teaching us lessons. So, Saul is chosen to be king. Now, Saul is a great picture of the world. Because what God did is he put in place someone that would have been a, a very handsome specimen. He was a head taller than everybody else. He, was, uh, he would have been like, uh, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, it would be somebody like that. I mean, he's... You know, somebody that would just, is a commanding presence. And you would just naturally want to follow. And so it's such a picture that, that the world is drawn to the physical, the outward appearance. And so here's Saul. He's, he's been appointed king of Israel. And he starts having a lot of success. And so when you start having a lot of success, what happens to you? Kind of goes to your head. Pretty soon you think you're pretty good. You're hot stuff. Okay, well, that's where Saul is. In 1 Samuel 15, he thinks he's hot stuff. He's pretty cocky and pretty arrogant. And um, the Lord calls uh, Samuel up one night and says, Samuel, I need you to go and talk to Saul about something. So let's start in chapter chapter 15, verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, why did he have to say that? Because Saul's arrogance. It's like i got to walk up to Saul, slap him a few times and say, Saul, you remember me? I'm the one that anointed you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I remember you. Yeah, I remember you. Okay. All right. So he says, so now listen to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now, you remember what happened there? That was in Exodus chapter 17, I believe. And... Uh, the Israelites are on their way out of Egypt, and the Amalekites attacked them. And you remember, it was a fierce battle. And you remember that uh, Aaron and Hur and Moses went up on top of a hill. Remember that? And when Moses is lifted up his hands, what happened? They won. When his hands went down, what happened? The Amalekites won, right? And so what happened is, is at the, and by the end of the day, Moses is getting pretty tired of this. So we have Aaron and Hur either side holding up his hands, and so at the end of the day they won. But it was a fierce battle. And so these people were aggressive against Israel. Now this was about 350 years ago. From this time here in Saul's, Saul's reign back to that incident was probably around 350 years. So all the people that were alive at that time in Amalek, do you think they're alive to, at this time? They're probably all dead. So wait a minute. All the people responsible for that aggression against Israel are no longer there. So what is this deal? You know, he's talking about punishing the Amalekites. Well, they're all dead. How can we punish the Amalekites when they're dead? Because of generational transfer. The sins of the fathers are visited on the children to the third and fourth generation. You know, we keep thinking that when we are born, we're kind of born into a vacuum. It's like we have a clean slate, like, you know, we all get to just pick and choose what we want to do. But no, you're born into a context. 
You're born into a family that has sins and curses and issues and problems and challenges. And so everybody's born into that. And so whether you like it or not, that's, that's your context. And God has given it to you. And if you know Jesus Christ, you know that God is very redemptive. There's a purpose for those things. He's always looking for a humble heart so he can restore and, and rejuvenate and stop generational curses. Well, anyway, the Amalekites here, they're about to get judged 350 years after their provocation of Israel. Now, here's what Samuel says. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now, that may offend you. It, it kind of offends me to think, well, why is he going to kill the women and the children? What, what is this deal? Well, there's something about the judgment of God that it comes down upon everybody that's connected with sin. There's fallout. You know, if there is sin in the camp, like with Achan, remember when Achan sinned? He held back the gold after the Lord said, you know, don't take any of the, the booty when, when you, you defeat them. Don't take the booty. He took the booty, put it in his tent, thought nobody will know. And what happened to the Israelites? They were defeated in the next battle, and a bunch of people got killed. Now that looks unfair to us. But the reality is that God's in charge. God gets to define how he wants the universe to run. So we look at that, and it may give us some grief and some pain as we look at it, but we remember he's in charge. Did you make yourself? If you didn't make yourself, you don't get to make the rules. So none of us here have made ourselves, so we have to submit to the rules of the one that made us. Reading on. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telem, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Amalek is way down here. You see at the bottom? Now Saul lived in Gibeah. So he musters these guys up near where he lives, somewhere 210,000 men. And he goes down to Amalek. Now, if you read the text, you might get the impression that it was just a short walk. You know, just over the, over the crest of the hill or something. But you're talking about probably 200 kilometers. Has anybody ever walked 200 kilometers? Okay. It's like going to Calgary, something like that. How long do you think it takes you to get there? Take a week? You think? Take a week to get there? Okay, so they're traveling all the way down to Amalek. So just wanted to give you a kind of a, the geography there so you can see what's going on. So they go down there. Saul went to the city of the Am- Am- Amalekites and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites. Now, who are the Kenites? The Kenites were related to Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, who was the priest of Midian. And you may recall that they were very kind and gracious to the Israelites. Well, Saul knew this. So when he gets down there, he basically says, hey, you guys need to go away because I'm going to destroy the Amalekites and I don't want you to get caught up in what's getting ready to happen. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and all his people he totally destroyed with a sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle the fat, fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Okay, did Saul do what he was told to do? He didn't? Well, he destroyed them. No, he didn't destroy everything, did he? Kept the king alive and kept choice, choice animals and uh, things that they, they wanted to keep. So... Saul interpreted this command from God in his own way. Saul was on a mission. You and I are on a mission. Have you ever thought about what your mission is? Have you ever asked the Lord to clarify your mission? Have you ever had a commissioning agent like Samuel come and tell you what your mission was? How many of you feel like you've been commissioned? If you've been commissioned, raise your hand. A few of you have been. Okay. Let me suggest that one of the great things that fathers do is commission sons. Now remember, we're talking about male or female. Ladies need to be commissioned. Men need to be commissioned. 
Everybody needs somebody that loves them, that has an authority position in their life, to look at them and call out the destiny of God in them and to help them discern their mission. So that's, that's, that's one of the... Let me suggest to you, the greatest thing I can do for you, the greatest thing you could do for me, is introduce me to Christ. Would you agree? Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. There's nothing more important in life than coming to know Jesus Christ. Well, what's the second greatest thing that, that you could do for me? How about help me find my mission? If God is intentional and purposeful, and everybody here was created for a reason, everybody has a mission. And if we're not doing our mission, that means we're not obeying God. Just like Samuel was assigned a mission. It was a command from God, go do this. And alignment with God, obedience to God was to do it. Well, so each of us has a mission. So can we, can we get it that the job of parenting is about helping children find their mission? The job of pastoring is about helping people in the church find their mission. The job of employers is about helping their employees find their mission. And the job of government officials should be about helping people find their mission. Now, I know that's kind of a foreign thought to most of us because most of us have taken the approach that, you know, life is, you know, kind of, uh, it's up to us. We kind of make our own way and decide what we want to do. And all we need to do is kind of be humble and worship God and, you know, attend church and tithe and everything's cool. We don't have a sense of destiny and purpose and mission in our lives. But I'm sorry, that's not the way God made the universe. God makes us with intent and purpose. Just like uh, Saul and Samuel both had missions, you and I have a mission. And if you don't have a clue about your mission, what should you do? Huh? Yes, you should seek it. But I would encourage you to go find a spiritual father and say, I would like for you to help me find my mission. And you have very godly men in here, in this church, that can help you find your mission. So that's the number one objective for everybody. Find your mission. Now, one of the great impediments to finding your mission is monuments. So let's go on and read the text. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Now, let me just make a quick comment on here. Um, how, many of you, how many of you have ever heard the term anthropomorphic language? Has anybody ever heard that term? Anthropomorphic language. You can say it with me. Anthropomorphic language. You've just learned a theological term. Now you're saying, what in the world does it mean? Anthro means man. Morphe means form. Now this is a technical term that theologians use to describe how God sometimes communicates. Have you ever thought about how does an infinite God who transcends everything that we can possibly imagine communicate with finite beings? Us. How does he do that? Well, one of the tools is anthropomorphic language in which he speaks as if he were a man. You see, that's what he's saying. When he says, I am grieved, he's acting like he is a man. And by saying, I am grieved, it implies that he might be surprised. But if God is sovereignly in control of the universe, is he ever surprised? He's never surprised. So this is, a, this is language of accommodation, as theologians put it. He's, he's expressing something to try to communicate to us that he really is. It's a sad thing for him to see what Saul has done. Okay, let's read on. Samuel was troubled. And he cried out to the Lord all that night. And you know, that's what fathers do when they're grieved over their sons. If they have a, you know, a a daughter or a son that's wayward or that's, that's running from God, that causes fathers great grief. So it's not unusual for the fathers to be, be up all night in prayer, seeking God, seeking the face of God, asking Him, Lord, would you, would you go and rescue my child? Would you return the prodigal? So Samuel is troubled. He cries out to God all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. Okay, so let me show you where Carmel is. You see, up at the top there, 
Now, you remember the battle is down at the bottom. It's probably about 200 kilometers from Gibeah, which is where Saul lived, down to the battle site. Now, they go all the way up to Mount Carmel. That's a mountain range up there by the ocean. And that's probably about 400 kilometers. So that's a couple of weeks for these guys to go up there. And what they're doing, not only are they going up there with 200 and some odd thousand men, they got all these this cattle and sheep and all this the booty that they picked up from the Amalekites. So they go all the way up there. And why do they go all the way up to Carmel? Let's read the text. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. Which I, I, I've often wondered, where did Samuel go? Did he go down to Amalek and then find out Saul had gone all the way up to Carmel? <laughs> Oh man, we got a we got a chase going on here, okay? And what he finds out is Saul has gone to Carmel, and there he has set up a monument in his own honor. Wow, that's interesting. Why would you set up a monument in your own honor? A lot of pride. It's a lot of ego. It's a lot about me, making me look good. Look how good I am. I am the best. I'm the greatest. Nobody can beat me. And so we're going to go find the highest mountain we can, and we're going to put it. We're going to put this monument up there so that people that are sailing on the Mediterranean Ocean or people that are traveling through Israel, they're going to see this monument to me. Now, how much time and energy and resources do you think went into that? Not, not just the travel up there, but getting everything to the top of the mountain and building this thing. I mean, this probably went on for months. And so Samuel's trying to run down Saul, trying to figure out what in the world is going on. Well, may I suggest to you that we build monuments just like Saul does? We do that. And you say, well, wait a minute, I don't build any monuments. There's not any building or any big statues or anything out there with my name on it. Oh, really? Well, let's just talk about it. My wife and I were talking about it this morning at breakfast. I was just asking her, you know, what, what monuments have you built? And so she started telling me the monuments that I built. I said, no, no, no. What monuments have you built? No, she started telling me about my monuments. I said, so, all right, so I have to come clean. I built monuments. And my monuments had to do with money. It had to do with a perception of success in the business world. And uh, when I had, uh, I, I ran the family business for about 10 years, and I sold it in the mid-80s, and I thought that I would go be a real estate guy. You know, I'd go develop real estate property, and, I mean, I'd be and make a bunch of money, and, you know, I had all of this justified because I was going to be a, a good tither, and I was going to support Kingdom Projects. Isn't that a good reason to be wealthy? Yeah, I thought that was really cool. Did you know God didn't bless that? You know, because I was trying to build a monument to me. It was all about me and how great I was. And look at me. Look how smart I am. Look how intelligent I am. How creative I am. How much vision I have. And look how I'm able to, to make a bunch of money. Well, that was all me and my monument. Now, to try to get the heat off me a little bit, my wife did acknowledge that she built a monument. And she said her monument was her children. And she realized as we talked that what she had done, and I think a lot of mothers do this unwittingly, is they were living out their dreams through their children. They were trying to get their children to do things that they hadn't been able to do. Now dads can do that too. Uh, my wife has uh, uh, got a, she, she teaches at, at a Christian private school and she runs into all kinds of fun situations. And occasionally she runs into what she calls the sports dads. And some of you may be the sports dads. Well, the sports dads, I mean, it's, they talk about how much they value education, but they really, in reality, they don't give a rip about education. It's all about sports. And everything's about the football game and the basketball game and the baseball game and all that stuff. So, and these, these dads typically are very difficult to deal with. And, and invariably, as you get to know these people, what you discover is these dads are living out their long lost dreams. They didn't get to be that football star, so they're going to make their son a football star. They didn't get to be that baseball star, so they're going to make that son a baseball star. You see what they're doing here? They're trying to build a monument to themselves, trying to use the children as a look to say, look how great I am. You see, those are just some simple pictures, and if we, if we had the time to really have everybody assess your life, everybody in this room, if you're really honest, you've all done it too. We've all done it. We've all built monuments to ourselves because of our egos, our pride, our arrogance, 
and our failure to obey the commands of God. Anytime you're not walking in what God has called you to do, you are building a monument. Anytime that you are not building sons, you're building a monument. Now I'm going to just show you this text in 2 Samuel chapter 18. This is about Absalom. This is Absalom's, Absalom's legacy. Right after he died, this is what is said. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself. For he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Now, as I read that, what what this text tells me is if I'm not building sons, I am building monuments. Now, let me clarify. There's nothing wrong with a monument if it's somebody else honoring you. It's when you build your own monuments, that's what's wrong. And so my contention is this. Ask yourself, look at your own life and say, who are my sons? Who are the people that I'm sowing what God has put into me into? And who are the people I'm helping to find their destiny? Who are those people? If you can't identify those people, then you're not making sons. You're making monuments. Let another praise you, not your own mouth. Someone else, not your own lips. You know, when you're going to build sons, it's many times very thankless. Parents know this. I think one of the reasons we're parents is to show us what it's like to truly be a father and a mother. I mean, how many times have you been up late at night with a sick child doing this or doing that? Nobody knows it. But you have to do it. Because if you don't do it, the child is going to get get worse. And your heart is for that child. And so you're nursing that child and tending to that child. You're sacrificing yourself for that child. That's what fathering is. That's what mothering is. That's what parenting is. Well, so it is in the, in the spirit. We need to be willing to do the work that doesn't attract any attention. That's not glamorous. That's, uh, you know, actually it's probably pretty hard work. Because, you know, dealing with people can be difficult. I know none of you probably have ever had this experience, but I've had, I've had some challenges with people. You know, they've been difficult to deal with. Sometimes kind of, I thought, kind of irrational, and they drew wrong conclusions about me and said nasty things about me. Well, those, that's difficult. But you know, if you're going to deal with people, you're going to deal with difficult situations. How many of you have had a prodigal child? You know, we had a prodigal child. Very strong-willed girl that... Um, just uh, she was very kinesthetic now kinesthetic means that the way she learned is she had to experience for example if you told my daughter uh, if you stick your finger on the on the uh, the hot stove it will burn she would say oh really as she stuck her finger on it she had to experience it that's the only way she ever learned and so when you have a child like that it's really challenging to guide that child because they've got to go out and try everything and so that's, that's what produces prodigals many times, is kinesthetic, strong-willed children. So the nice thing about the prodigals is they do wind up in the pig pen. And they come to them sense, their senses. And whatever seeds you put into them, you know, will begin to bear fruit. You know, sowing and reaping works. When you sow into someone, whatever you sow into them will bear fruit. My wife grew up in a, in a fairly strong Christian home, and uh, throughout her... Her childhood years, uh, she was in a very strong uh, teaching environment. She heard a lot of doctrine, a lot of Bible studies, uh, just had a lot of truth that she was exposed to. Now, as a young girl, she really wasn't very interested in this truth. And I know, I know none, of, none of you can believe this, but as a teenager, she was turning her off her ears as best she could. But you know, when you're sitting in a class, you know, you're, the words are coming, whether you want to hear them or not, they're coming at you. And so when she became a young adult, you know, she was trying to forget as much as she possibly could. And then later on in life, as she really became, you know, convicted of her need to walk with God and to find her destiny. And she began to press into God and she began to have experiences where she was in situations where uh, she needed needed to know something from Scripture. And she knew it. And she says, I don't have a clue how I knew it. But it was just there. You know, I knew the text. I knew where it was. I knew what it said. You know what that was? That was sowing and reaping. All that sowing that was done in her, in her as a child, as a teenager, which she was trying to resist, 
can't resist it. The, the seed's going in the ground. And God is going to germinate it at some point in time. That's why we need to keep sowing into our children, even when it looks like they're not listening. Okay, monuments. Monuments is about yourself. It's about ego. Let's talk about missing the mark. Okay, who knows what the definition of sin is? Missing the mark. Sin is an, is an archery term. It was used in Great Britain. If you were uh, on the archery range and you were um, practicing your bow and arrow, does anybody hunt with bow and arrow? Nobody does that? You don't do that up here? You do? Okay, we got one. Okay, you set the target out there and you, you shoot your bow and uh, there's, a, there's a spotter down there. And if you miss the target, the spotter yells out, Sin! That means you missed the mark. You didn't hit the target. So that's really what sin means, is missing the mark. So what we have here is a great picture here of Samuel missing the mark. So let's read here. When Samuel reached him, remember this has been a long journey. We don't know how long this, this uh, chase went on, trying, where Samuel's trying to catch up with Saul. But he finally did. And Saul says to him, well, the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel says, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, well, now notice what happens. Saul now moves from the first tense. He says, the soldiers. The soldiers. What's he doing here? Blaming. He's just like his mother and daddy, Adam and Eve. Remember that? That's what Adam did when God confronted Adam. What did Adam say? It was the woman. Right? So, it's, it's in our DNA. We're all sons of Adam and Eve. Sons, of, sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. So anyway, here we go. The Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. And Samuel says, really? What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? And what's this lowing of the cattle that I hear? And Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle of sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Notice he goes back to first person. Because see, he knows deep down what the commandment was. He knows deep down that he disobeyed. But he's trying to distance himself and blame others. But when it comes to that which was aligned with the commandment, it's we. We totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission that the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. How can you say I completely destroyed and brought back? How does that work? The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God at Gilgal. So you can see what we're doing is we're getting real religious about this. We're getting ready to talk about, you know, how spiritual we are and how we've done this for God. You see, that's how we rationalize our disobedience is we couch it in spiritual terms. I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people where I felt like the Lord had given me some insight. And I wanted to share it with them, what I thought the Lord had told me. And so I walk up to them and I might say, you know, I understand you, want, you think you're supposed to do such and such. And I just wanted to share with you my thought. And then I'll say, well, the Lord told me. What did that do to me? That just shut me down. Because if the Lord said it, well, what do I have to say? I mean, I have nothing to say. So if we're not willing to listen to the voice of God through others, we're probably going to do exactly what Samuel did. We're going to obey partially, which means we're going to miss the mark. We're not going to really obey the Lord. So let's watch, let's see what Samuel has to say about this. This is a fairly famous text here. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? 
What are, what are burnt offerings and sacrifices? What is that? Huh? What is it? It's part of the, the, the Israelite tradition. It's part of the Old Covenant. It's, it's a way that you, you are obeying the commands of God. We have the law. It has religious or ceremonial provisions. It has uh, you know, provisions of, of, of community. It has moral provisions to it. There are various aspects of provision in the law. So this is the ceremonial part of it. And of course, all the sacrifices in the Old Testament are looking ahead to Christ. Christ is the sacrifice, the one and final sacrifice for all sin. Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. So all of this was looking forward to Christ. So these were activities that you do. Now today, we don't do sacrifices like this. What we do is we go to church and we go to Bible study and we go to prayer meeting and we go on mission trips and you know do those kinds of things. That's, that's the kind of activity we do. So when you read this, don't get hung up here. You know, we do the same kinds of things. They just look a little different today. So does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in, as obeying the voice of God? Now you notice he's not saying it's wrong to do those sacrifices. No, it's, you should do those things. That's obedience too. But he's saying, when I've given you a specific commandment, that's more important than you going and sacrificing. You need to go do that commandment. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. Now, that's, this, is a, this is a big point here. Most of us struggle with this because we, we separate out our lives into compartments. You know, we have our, our church life, and then when we walk out of the door on Sunday, we kind of go into the rest of our life. And it's hard to translate what happens on, at church into what happens into the rest of our life. For example, have you ever noticed that people talk differently in church than they do any t- place else? You ever notice that? Okay. Yeah. Have you, have you noticed how quick we are to pray at church? Yeah. Do you do that in business? You have a business problem. You say, okay, guys, let's get together around here and let's pray. Does anybody do that as a regular practice? Pray four or five times a day. You fast in business? You know, fast and seek God to, to get revelation on what he wants done? We don't do that, do we? Because we, we compartmentalize life. We live it differently. You know, we get real religious when we come to church, but when we go home, well, we've got to get real now, because church is not real. I mean, that's really what we're saying. But you see, the reality is that God made everything. And God is still God at home, and in business, and in your community, just like he's God here. And he wants the same thing in every sphere. He wants obedience. Which means you need to know what to obey. And there's two basic things we all have to obey. Number one is, we need to know the Word of God well enough to where we can walk in a biblical worldview. That is, we see the world through God's eyes, and we know His principles and His values, His philosophy of life. We know how God wants us to raise children, how God wants us to run our businesses and run our communities. And so we should be trained in those principles. And that's largely what the church should be doing, is giving you the values and principles to do that. So that's the first obedience. I call that general obedience. Everybody should do that. Now, there's a second obedience that's very special to you and to me, to individual. And that is God has a plan and purpose for you. He has a mission for you, just like he did for Saul. You see, Saul's mission was for Saul. It was not for Samuel. It was for Saul. Well, you have a mission just like Saul. So part of your obedience is to discern your mission and to do it. So that's special obedience. You have general obedience, walking in a biblical worldview, special obedience, walking in the specific calling and destiny that you have. Now, how many of you don't have a clue what that special calling is in your life? Don't be embarrassed. It's okay. Everybody, at some point in their life, you don't have a clue. Could I encourage you, talk to one of your church leaders here. Tell them that you want some help finding what it is that you've been called to do. And did you know you can be called to do all kinds of things? You know, when we use the term calling, we frequently think in terms of being called to being a pastor. 
or being a missionary. We don't think of calling in terms of being called to be an engineer or be a salesman or to be a farmer. We don't call it, think of it that way, do we? Did you know my wife is called to education? She's called to do what she does. And she is masterful. Of all the people I know, and I know a lot of people walking in their calling, I don't know if anybody that's more of a kingdom person than my wife. I'll put her up against any church leader that I know. She is, she is that focused and that committed. She walks in a biblical worldview, and she knows every day what God has assigned her to do. And she is faithful to be obedient to it. That's, where, that's, where, that's the level of, of Christianity that we need to get to. And most of us are not there. But don't worry. Don't despair. You can get there. There is help. All you have to do is tap into your leaders and say, will you father me? Will you disciple me? Will you help me find what it is that God has called me to do? Now, if you don't do this, you need to understand what you're doing. If you refuse to discover your special call and be, be obedient to that call, you need to pay attention to what uh, the text says. Look what it says in the next verse. says, for rebellion is like the sin of divination. Do you know what the sin of divination is? That's when you're looking for guidance in your life from the kingdom of darkness. There's only two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. We all have been born into the kingdom of darkness. Let's take a look at this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray by mute idols or dumb idols. In other words, when I'm born into this world, I'm born into a state of idolatry. When I come to know Jesus Christ, now I am, I am positionally moved out of that state into the kingdom of light. I was in the kingdom of darkness, now I'm in the kingdom of light. The problem is, I don't always act like I'm in the kingdom of light. I keep reverting back to the patterns of the kingdom of darkness. And that's where most of us live, in the reverted state. And we need to move into the transformed state. We have, we have all the power to live there, all the capability to live there, but we have to humble ourselves and we have to decide that we're not going to build monuments. We're going to humble ourselves and become sons and build sons, and then we can move into that transformed state. If you don't do that, you are guilty of the sin of divination. Now, that didn't make an impression, I can tell. Some people, you don't really react to that. But I'm just reading the text. Don't throw, don't throw tomatoes at me. Am I reading the text or not? That's what the text says. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. Now, it doesn't say it is the sin of divination. It's like it. It's comparing it to it. It's saying it's that bad. Rebellion is that bad. And then he goes on and tells you, he says it another way. This is kind of the Hebrew couplet. If you, are you familiar with Hebrew poetry? It's done in couplets. Uh, well, and there's basically three types of couplets. There's uh, synonymous, um, which basically you're saying the same thing two different two different times. There's antithetical, okay, where you're saying the, the opposite. You say one thing, and then you say the opposite. And the third way is the synthetic, where you say something and then you build on it, you add to it. So I think this is probably a synonymous couplet. I think he's saying basically the same thing two different ways. He's saying rebellion is like the sin of divination. And he said, arrogance, arrogance is like rebellion. If you're in rebellion, you're arrogant, okay, is like the evil of idolatry. So we're back into the kingdom of darkness again. If I don't discover why I am here and I don't submit to the will of God for my life, I am an idol worshiper. I don't care if I go to church. If I've known the Lord for 40 years, if I know my Bible, if I tithe, it doesn't matter. If I am not walking in my destiny, I am an idol worshiper. That's what this text is telling me. Do you believe that? you really believe that? Okay, if you really believe it, what are you going to do about it? Nothing? Okay. Walk home confused, try to forget this message, tear up my notes. What are we going to do? Are we going to decide to get on our knees before God and say, God, I need to understand what you called me to do. I need to hear from you. I need a commissioning agent, a father to disciple me and to call me into my destiny. Can we do that? Is that too hard? 
Is it too intimidating, too difficult, too challenging? Maybe I don't want to because I don't want to give up control. You know, you, you will have to give up control because this is about dying to self. You know, Jesus talked about if you're going to follow him, what do you have to do? You die to self. Your desires, your dreams, your ambitions, your definition of success, you know, your wants, your cares, all that's got to go. So do you really want that? Let me say this in conclusion. Don't miss the mark. If you miss the mark, you're going to be building monuments. Monuments to yourself that in the end will be worth nothing. How many of you know who Bill Gates is? Okay. Is Bill Gates a success? Is he a success? You say he is a success? Why is he a success? Because he made a bunch of money? Is that why he's a success? When Bill Gates dies, what's going to happen to his money? Did it do anything, that money do anything for him to prepare him for his eternal state? I don't know his spiritual condition at all. But money is not going to prepare you for your, your eternal state. What's going to prepare you for your eternal state is something that's it's called true riches. True riches is something more valuable than money. And Solomon tells us what true riches is in Proverbs 3 and Proverbs chapter 8. What are true riches? It's wisdom. You know what the definition of wisdom is? Let me give you a definition. First of all, knowledge. Knowledge is understanding how God made his universe to work. That sound reasonable? That's knowledge. Wisdom is the skill to live in God's universe. To apply that knowledge skillfully and properly and appropriately to live in God's universe. The only way you're going to have wisdom is from God. Wisdom, you cannot buy wisdom. Do you know that? Bill Gates can't buy wisdom. He could offer all all of his wealth, he can't buy wisdom. You only get wisdom sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's the only way you're going to get it. Which means humbly submitting ourselves to the will of God in our lives. So my challenge to you today is this. Don't miss the mark for your life by building monuments. And please, don't think that you haven't done it. We've all done it. It would be a fun discussion with your spouse at lunch. Just ask each other, what monuments have you built? If your wife's like mine, she'll start talking about you real quickly. Because she she knows what monuments you built. And please, don't don't get pushed back. Just listen to her. Trust the Holy Spirit's going to talk to you through your wife. And then as you receive from her, she's probably going to reciprocate. And then you have a chance to share with her what you see. But be gentlemen. Okay. Don't build monuments. Instead, find your mission and do it. And a key part of your mission is going to be to make sons. People on their mission will help others find their mission. Now, some of you may have may be hearing a lie from the enemy right now, and the lie is you're too old. You missed it. You blew it, guy. That's a lie. You're never too old. How old was Moses before he really got on track? He was 80. Anybody here 80? Okay. You're still in the game, guys. It doesn't matter who you are. You're in the game. And if you want to bless your children, then what you need to do is get on your race. Do what you're called to do, and you will model for them how to get on their race. Do you see this? Does this make sense to you all? Okay. Does it, do you see Christians? I mean, you guys know Christians all over the place. Do you see Christians doing this? Anybody know a bunch of Christians? Hey, man, they are on the race. They know what they're doing. They're, they're doing what they're called to do. Anybody, anybody know anybody like that? You know, maybe a few. But the vast majority aren't. What the vast majority of Christians are probably, please, I'm not being critical. I'm just observing. I mean, I've been a Christian a long time. I've been in church 45 years. But I'm an elder in church. I've been an elder for a long time. I've seen a lot of people. We've had a lot of people come through our home and life groups. And over, I mean, the patterns are the same. And by the way, I've traveled. I've been down to South Africa. I've been to Europe. 
you know, up to Canada, down to Mexico, across the United States. It's the same thing. People are fundamentally the same. The way you guys do church here is the same way they do church in South Africa. If you went to South Africa, you wouldn't, you wouldn't find a lot of difference. Now, now you could, granted, you could find some native situations, but the South Africans live very much like we do. And they do church very much like we do, and they're stuck with the same problems we're stuck with. So, do you want to make, you want your life to count? Let me, if you want your life to count, raise your hand. I want my life to count. The only way your life's going to count is to do what you've been assigned to do. There's no other way it's going to count. Because you won't have favor to do anything except what you've been assigned to do. You know, God's not going to bless your monument. He's going to blow it up. What did he do in Genesis chapter 11? Remember that story? The Tower of Babel? They started to build a big monument there. And why did they, want, why did they build that monument? They wanted to do what? Make a name for themselves. You see, monuments to ourselves are about us. Making a name for ourselves. What did God do with that monument? He blew it up. Because it was not consistent with his will. That was not what he wanted done. The only thing you're going to have favor to do, the only thing you're going to find the grace of God to do, the only thing you're going to have revelation to do, the only, way you, only thing you're going to be world class at, the only thing that's going to give you peace and joy and contentment in life, the only thing that's going to fill up that, that agitation in your spirit is doing what God created you to do. And you can discover it. Because he's a God that, that answers our prayers. So when we say, Lord, would you reveal to us the specific mission that you've assigned to me? He says, yes, son, I will. So the revelation is available to you. May God give you the grace to find your, way, find your race and do the will of God. And do it completely, not partially. Don't redefine it. Let God define it and do it. To the glory of God. Let me pray for you. Would you just hold your hands out like this to receive? Lord, I thank you that you are the God of creation. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You have created this universe. And you have created each person with specific purpose and destiny in mind. And that we can count on you to reveal to us our race. Lord, our desire, our heart is to know you and to know the fullness of your purpose. And our heart is to humble ourselves and make sons, sons who are on their race because they're seen in us modeled how to be on your race. So, Lord, give us the grace to get on our races and to help our sons get on our races, to do your, your bidding, to do the missions you've assigned us to do, to bring glory and honor to your name. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you as your servants. In Jesus' precious name, amen.